Hey everybody, the Extra Crunch crew is building out a list of startup badasses for our TC Experts project. We are first looking for the best email marketers in the game, so if that is you or you know who that is, please head to techcrunch.com experts, fill out the survey, we'll compile the list and share it out to everyone in the EC community, and just from us, a big shout out to Miranda and Eric for all their hard work on this project. As always, if you want to support the show and see who we find, subscribe to Extra Crunch for all of our best stuff every day. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and this is our Wednesday show. We are going to dive deep into the interesting niche of disaster response technology and helping me kind of poke away at this. I have Natasha Moscarenas here. Natasha, how are you? I'm doing great. I am excited to get into Danny's disaster dynamics to use alliteration to start the show. <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about Danny's dating life on the show. Um, and Danny, we're, we're making jokes a little bit at your expense because you have put together a, an epic series of articles over on TechCrunch, not ExaCrunch critically, so everyone out there can, can read these, about disaster tech. And first and foremost, my man, I read them all, good work, but I didn't even know disaster tech was a startup niche. And so to kick things off, can you tell our friends why you decided to write 48,000 words <laughs> on this actually relatively interesting niche. I mean, it, it ended up being great, but I just, you know, for me, a little bit out of left field. Well, I mean, think over the last year, we've had a massive pandemic. We had Texas offline. We had California power outages, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods. And so there's just more and more entrepreneurs, some of the smartest people I know in the world, think about what can tech do when society turns off, when the power goes out, when the lights flicker? And the answer is there's actually a lot to be done. And so I wanted to explore in the series all the different angles that people are going on, what the challenges were and what's happening next. Yeah, I mean, I think hindsight is 2020 with the pandemic. And so it's cool to see a lot of startups suddenly get that aha moment and get a lot of people behind them. For me with EdTech was you see one company doing well, so you realize that this is a moment for it. For you, did you see venture level returns happening, a singular company dominate the spotlight and then work backwards? Or is it still pretty nascent from in the venture capital and early stage startup world? I think it's still pretty nascent. I mean, the, the company that broke through that really made a lot of money was Palantir, obviously. At tens of billions of dollars of market cap, it's the first company that's really proven that you can go public as a GovTech-focused company and produce a lot of money and a lot of value. And so I think that really opened up the eyes to a lot of VCs to say, well, there's a whole market here. There's a lot that can be done. But I mean, on the returns point, Danny, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about the sales issues that kind of come into play with these startups. Can they really generate venture-level returns? I mean, we talk a lot about how some businesses are great and have pretty quick growth, but don't quite meet that venture threshold. You know, these startups have an uphill battle. Can they actually meet, you know, make the cut? I, I talk to a lot of VCs. I mean, I, I think the biggest challenge is it's really hard to get started in these markets, right? It takes years to kind of get the flywheel going. On the flip side, unlike normal SaaS contracts, government contracts can last as long as seven to 10 years each. So like once you're in the system, it's the most amazing place to ever be. You can make a lot of money for a very long period of time. But that early couple of years is where the biggest challenge is for startups in this space. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the sales cycle because the first piece in your, in your series was called the most disastrous sales cycle in the world. 
And I thought that was kind of like a traditional headline, like 90% truth, 10% hyperbole. And then I read the piece and I think it actually maybe understatement because it just sounds so hard. So, so tell everyone about the seasonality of funding and why it's hard to get your boots in the door. So look, GovTech is already really hard. So let's just assume that, which is government is hard to sell to. They don't know necessarily what they want. Funding is kind of random or haphazard or whatever the case may be. And then multiply that by like 10x, because in the disaster emergency management response space, you have a couple more problems. One is people are actually doing work. Um, the people who actually are buying this, these systems actually have to respond to emergencies and disasters. That's what they do, right? And so in the middle of a sale process, you know, if the wildfire start up in California, the whole agency, the, you know, everything about appropriations, everything about contracting process will just slow to a halt as the entire agency moves into kind of an execution mode. And so you can't always predict this. I mean, there are seasons for a lot of different disasters, but like take the Texas blackout in February. No one sort of predicted that the state of Texas was not going to have power for a couple of days, knocking out millions of people from heat in the middle of the winter. It's one of those things where you have seasonality. There's only a couple of periods around the year. So it's similar to ed tech that Natasha knows actually quite well. And then you have this sort of surge of funding and then recline of funding. As soon as a disaster hits, people go, wow, like we should have some way of solving this disaster. And so Congress, state legislatures appropriate a bunch of money and then they disappear for three to five years until the next thing happens. One bit is growing in the sales cycle world to your story, Danny, was how climate change in kind of a messed up way is making it easier for sales because it's not going anywhere. It's getting worse and it's getting, you know, ever worrisome. So climate change, it seems, might be a little bit of an answer. If you're a startup working on climate change, it might have a little bit of an easier sales cycle. Yeah. I mean, you see this in cases like a wildfire. You you know, it used to be a four to six month period. So there was sort of the off period where you would sort of set up for the next year so you could buy software, figure stuff out, train and all this. Wildfires are around the clock now. Okay. Wildfires yeah. happen in January and August. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> you know, California can be burning at any time. And so a lot of the agencies have had to reconfigure and actually say, well, I mean, we kind of have to buy software all around the year and we have to be always sort of upgrading and training no matter what the case may be. So before we get into a whole bunch of startups working in this space that I really want to talk about, does that mean, Danny, that last point about, you know, buying software a bit more year round as opposed to in these very short and decreasing size windows, uh, does that mean that you're overall bullish about the ability of startups to kind of capture revenue from this space in the next, I don't know, three, five years? I think I'm really bullish for two. Well, one is that startups basically own none of the revenue in the space. So it's kind of greenfield. There's a lot of incumbents of integrated software companies, et cetera, but like legacy incumbents. So there's a lot of open field. And then two, I mean, because of climate changes, and Natasha pointed out, um, disasters is a growth business. Um, cataclysmic destruction is a, a fastly scaling up challenge. And there's going to be more and more budgets devoted to solving these problems. I mean, just more places are affected by it every day around the world. Yeah, that was definitely the, I don't want to say it's poetic, but that was the weird elephant in the room throughout the entire series is that all these companies are obviously doing great, but they're betting on things getting worse to hit scale. And I was like, that's a lot to address. The match.com of wildfires. Um, you know, it's like, we don't want to stop the tornadoes. Um, the good news <laughs> is, is most of these companies can't literally stop the crises yeah, from happening. I, this is so totally to be fair, unfair. 
They're not stopping. <laughs> you, know, they're not. You, you guys make it sound like the storms are out there like kicking the waves up during the hurricane, like making it splash more. Like no, they're just responding no, no, to everything they're, they're going just to hell. Launching more monarch butterflies in Africa to try to get that butterfly effect going across the Caribbean. I was curious where you were going with that. I'm like, that is a real ah, okay. Chaos theory. So, so I mean, like, I, I'm gonna weave in one Miami joke here, but I mean, like, I find it hilarious that we're talking about climate change and increasing storm surges and you know more hurricanes and all that, and the whole tech world's moving to Miami. Just like, what? Yes, Anyways. but have they been through a hurricane season yet? They will. No, they, no. <laughs> It's a bit like people who moved to Austin and then experienced a Texas summer and they're like, ah. I think we need to send Danny to Miami in preparation for that if he's truly going to commit to the seat for the long term. No, because then Danny will somehow become a jerk and I don't want that. <laughs> Let's go ahead and dig into a couple of startups. We have bucketed these, ladies and gentlemen, into three distinct categories, consumer, the data world, and then we're going to wrap up with a couple of notes on startups tackling the mental health impacts of disasters. So a lot to get through, Danny. We're going to kick off with Dorothy, named after the Wizard of Oz character, according to your reporting, that essentially bridges the gap. <laughs> that would be the deep reporting that goes into that particular story. Yes. Uh, bro, take take the little the little ups and, and, and don't... Man, brutal on yourself. Dorothy, as I learned from your terrible reporting, is named after the Wizard of Oz character. And what it does is bridge the gap between your house getting wrecked by a hurricane, effectively, and the time in which you actually may get either insurance money or some government aid. Because as it turns out, and this was news to me, months can pass with well, your house is wrecked before you get any cash. And not only can it be months on the private side, for the federal government, aid can take years to actually arrive. And that, that's because you have to remember that these storms often come in huge surges. So there's a staff of people whose job it is to adjust claims for all the different properties and all the different businesses that are uh, in a particular area. It comes in a massive wave, right? You go from zero claims and then all of a sudden there's 100,000 and they're all supposed to process it at once. So in many cases, you're just waiting on cash cash you need to rebuild, cash you need to restart your business. And so Dorothy is meant to be a gap. It's, it's basically like a lot of these SaaS securitization revenue companies, right? You have this money coming in the future, but you want it now. And so Dorothy will give you essentially the cash today um, in exchange for essentially a VIG, a fee on the claim that you will be processed through your insurance. So they're underwriting your ability to get your claim processed positively from your insurance And company. they raised 250K and had 25 qualified customers okay. in the pipeline. What do qualified customers look like here? 25 qualified customers. So people who are capable of actually being underwritten this way. So they have a small debt facility, a couple of customers in the pipeline. Obviously, very, very early. They're in the Urban X Accelerator here in New York City. And to me, it's like, this is a really new ground field of territory, right? So there's not a lot of enthusiasm, I think, immediately to go and fund this and put a million dollars in. And so they're testing out the model, proving that it works. Think if they can get some of the early underwriting to prove out they'll get a lot more attention from investors and from debt facility providers in the future. I think I think it's super great. I'm going to be curious to see how big of a cut they take. If it's going to be like an apple-sized behemoth 30% or if they're going to charge a more reasonable, friendly, kind of consumer-friendly uh, price point. But I mean, just given the scale of disasters we've seen in the U.S. due to flood damage, I can see there being, sorry to say, quite a lot of demand for this. But if water is bad, fire can be worse, Natasha, and some startups are pursuing that side of the coin. I'm here for it, Alex Wilhelm. That was a great transition. All right, I'm trying to... My, I'm not very good at the Danny transition still. I'm working All on we have it. to do is air and earth, and we will be... The last airbender will be on this program. Appa. What was his name? Sokka. I love Sokka. I'm being Sokka for Halloween this year. Wow, you guys are a bunch of nerds. <laughs> I mean, I thought you were going to make an Earth, Wind, and Fire joke about like the band. And I was like... I was trying to. I was trying to get there. Greek Fire. Oh. I don't know. No, we... This show is going off the rails. We're going to cut yeah. this whole segment. Natasha, Perimeter, let's talk about that. We can't cut this whole segment because there was an Avatar reference. Anyways, 
I want to talk about Perimeter, which when I read the story, it kind of came off like it's a ways for emergency response situations such as a tree falling on a road or a fire popping up. But it's a lot about communicating about disaster between citizens. So, Danny, tell us about that and why it's starting with wildfires. Well, you know, one of the biggest challenges is a lot of emergency management professionals communicate with citizens as they say, evacuate. Uh, and what they literally do in these rooms is they draw a picture, a polygon on a map, and they're like, everyone in this area should like leave. And the problem is, if you're a citizen in that area, let's say you're in Marin County last year during the fires in California, you don't know where to go. They don't tell you, don't go north. The fires Run. are north, go south. They're just like, <laughs> leave, get out, which isn't very useful. So perimeter, uh, which was started by Bailey Farron out in California, what she's trying to do and her team is trying to do is to help you get better and more accurate information so you'll actually get a map and say not just to leave but this is the best way to get out of the area in which you are the least traffic the less uh disasters in front of you and then on the flip side it'll help citizens communicate with emergency management professionals so they can upload photos videos of stuff they're seeing and try to create a vetted validated real-time map of what's going on in some of these chaotic areas. All right. So this all hinges, though, on, on, on knowing what's going on on the ground, the ability to kind of have the data in hand. And that's that was a key theme in a lot of your reporting on these companies, because as it turns out, the data collection process for disasters was uh, archaic if it existed, I think is maybe a fair summary. And so one piece you wrote, Danny, uh, data was the new oil until the oil caught fire. It's kind of a, a rundown of how we've gotten uh, improved sensor data across a number of different disaster vectors, maybe. Talk us through how this technology now works, battery life and so forth. Over the last 10 years, you've heard of this term like Internet of Things, IoT is going to transform the world. And let me tell you, it has done nothing. Uh, it is the most disappointing bullshit marketing speak I've ever heard in my entire life. Everyone said the same thing. They were like, you know, oh, yeah, these sensors. No one has sensors. But <laughs> but the vision of the IoT world has arrived and is is actually starting to become real. As an example of a startup that I just reported on this week, Gridware, a YC company from the 2021 batch, which you folks might have seen at Demo Day, raised $5.3 million. It was a good example of the kind of seed investments we're seeing here. A Berkeley team building uh, basically audio sensors on power poles. And so when a power pole snaps, when the wires get cut, it actually has onboard AI processing that hears those sounds and can send an alert to the utility company that's like, whoa, something is wrong here. You need to send out forces to do something. We're seeing that across the entire country. So whether it's utilities, telco, we have all these sensors now in place. And one of the key enabling technologies, as you pointed out, Alex, is batteries. The battery life for these sensors is gone from something like two years to 10 years. And that's important right. because a lot of power lines are in the middle of effing nowhere. I mean, uh, you know, hundreds of miles potentially from civilization as they transmit power across the country. And so they can't rely on power themselves. And in Gridware's case, the founder mentioned that they had met 100 or 130 investors reach out to them, a super fierce round. It's cool to see investors, one, run th towards hardware in general, but also have that added, as we've talked about already, government complexity airing above it. Well, what I love about Gridware, I mean, I, I wrote this in the story, you know, if you had to pick five key words that you never wanted to have in a fundraising pitch, hardware, IoT, infrastructure, utilities, and government sales have to be like the key words that are like, you know, as you're... a VC, you hear this and you're not like, don't run, like sprint like effing mad out of South Park, get in your car and drive to the nearest airport and yep. fly out of the country. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is untouchable. Mission oriented. Yeah, you might, you might want to throw in like B Corp and uh, <laughs> non-Stanford CEO, you know, the real killers of venture capital. But they had YC going right. for them. 
thankfully. Exactly. But you know, if you show you how much the disaster tech space has turned around, like 130 investors reached out, according to the founder. He's still trying to catch up to tell them that he never responded to their original requests. It was massively overfunded. And then two firms stood up. So True Ventures, which has been around a long time, has a massive climate change thesis. So they have a bunch of startups in the category, everything from insurance into sensors into hardware and, and, and more. And then uh, 50 years, so Seth Bannon and his team, which has been widely invested all across the kind of the climate change world. So again, you're, you're seeing more and more folks get involved in this. Obviously, a lot of VCs are concerned about this because of ESG requirements from Europe and elsewhere that mandate that a certain percentage of investments go to oh. uh, the environment. To so, I think it's what uh, environment, social and, and governance investment. Let's talk about one more in this space really quickly, which is Cornea. They just put together a $15 million round. And Denny, they're trying to help firefighters who apparently live in a very archaic system better determine how hard it will be to keep a fire down and kind of where it might break, I think. No, that's exactly right. Cornea is sort of a spin-out uh, government tech accelerator called Hangar. So Hangar itself raised $15 million. It's really a fund. It's an ex-Bloomberg team. And what, what Cornea is particularly trying to do is, is to predict the direction of wildfires. So where is it going to go based on the best data that we have available? And this is a good example of the kind of company that can be built today. Now that we have the data, and now you have it in a usable format, what do you do with it? Well, you can start to do intelligence. And, and much in the same way that we've seen in SaaS, once you have the data warehouse and the data processing, you can do ETL. That's all the fun stuff that happened in big data in the last 10 years. That's the, you know, data is the new oil. Well, now that the oil is on fire, you can do the same thing in disasters as well. The last section of startups is, I think, the most interesting, which is about mental health. And these are about startups that are trying to help people who have been, you know, impacted by catastrophe. And I think we think a lot about the money side of this and the, the buildings, but not enough about the the flesh and bone out there that's kind of walking around dealing with it. So Natasha, um, who's in our startup mix for this section? Yeah, so Danny explored a number of startups that are working on the mental health and post-traumatic stress of going through a disaster. And I think this section might be the one that is, you know, has the largest TAM from the average human because all of us can understand what it's like to go through a traumatic event because of the last year. So to get you a sense of how important disaster tech is, it now has a venture firm that whose thesis is focused on this. So Risk and Return is both a, a venture firm and a nonprofit wing. So it's sort of half and half. What they're focused on is, you know, pushing the limits of human performance, much like a lot of the emergency responders do in the field. A huge category for them, they say 50 to 60% is around post-traumatic stress and other mental health issues that come up in this sort of first responder space. So Alter Neuroscience, I believe, was their first deal. It's actually a Stanford team, a clinical professor at Etkin at Stanford Medical, who's trying to connect AI and ML te techniques to brainwave data. So can you identify post-traumatic stress, scanning the brain, and then can you sort of optimize the clinical treatment based on what they're seeing? So he's done a bunch of research over the last couple of years, spun out the company last year, has been building it out. It's still stealthy. I mean, it exists and they have a website, but it's very, very early. It's a clinical company, so it's going to be a couple of years, get through all the reviews and everything. But like a super interesting connection of we have that data, we have the, the sensors and, and the scans, we have the, the AIML algorithms are optimized. Like, what can we do this decade with all that? Yeah, no, this is, this is fascinating to me because I know a lot of mental health professionals and they do a lot of talking and it is a workable. So they're podcasters. Essentially, uh, but they <laughs> podcast with one other person in a room with no mics. Um, they would probably benefit from the ability... <laughs> 
<laughs> Danny's very proud of you. You can't see the video, but Danny's, know how to Danny's, Danny's just giggling to himself. Yeah, Alex is dissembling in front of us. Um, I, I think it's, it's going to be fascinating to see uh, more data uh, results come into the world of mental health care. That this is very exciting to me. All jokes aside, I think it's very very neat. I just you know, with all things clinical, I want to know how effective it is. How you know, and how much can be trusted and. How and I mean, this is. wasn't in the script, but something that came up in your story about the human focused startups within this is how to train the next generation of frontline workers to be able to, I guess, you know, pre PTSD, honestly. Um, and there was one quote that actually really stood out to me. Bryce Steerton, president and co-founder of Responder Corps, said that it's difficult to synthesize stressful environments. New technologies, though, have the ability to pump the heart that you need to experience in training. And so VR could be a way to do that. And that to me kind of sums it up pretty clearly. Like the actual emotion of disaster is where a lot of this innovation happens. So how do we make sure that emotion is felt beyond and before and during disasters? If you, if you think about the training for like being a soldier, right? You go to boot camp or you go to one of the officer candidate schools or, or the academies. So you have this huge long program to actually prepare you to be on the battlefield and, and how to approach that. If you're a first responder, You'd be amazed at how little actual training you might actually receive before going out into the field. Wow. Um, it could be weeks. In some cases, it could be days. And so I think one of the things you're seeing with a lot of the training is it's not just frontline workers who are doing this professionally. It's also citizens. I mean, if you're in California in a wildfire, how do you respond the first time? It's, it's easier on number 10 or 15, but for millions of people, they've never had to deal with it at all, right? And the, the fear in that moment the trauma, uh, a lot of that can actually be prevented if you sort of have tools in advance before you experience those situations. You know, I just want to point out here that in America, one of our more shameful things is that we often use prison labor to fight fires. Uh, not a very well-known fact, and I, I bet you a dollar that those workers are not getting much training at all, and let alone post-care. So um, something we could, uh, we could work on more in the country. Uh, and on a completely different note, Danny, let's close out with a look at psychedelics in the therapeutics world. Uh, talking about Oz, is it Ozmind or is it Ozmind? I think it's Ozmind. Ozmind. Okay, tell, tell us what's up. This came uh, out of risk and re re returns. They, they have not invested in this, but one of the things, the arguments they made is like, there are all these alternative treatments that you can't do in the government. The government won't fund for first responders, but private money today potentially could look into. So Ozmind is looking to build a clinical platform for managing mental health issues and patients with a psychedelic focus. So the idea is, obviously, there's been a lot of interest in LSD, microdosing, et cetera. When I think of disaster tech, I mean, to wrap up this whole thing, you know, yes, I am trying to create a niche. I'm trying to create a, a brand name a little bit around this. Um, it's a great name. Uh, disaster tech sounds cool, but it actually encompasses a lot. It covers everything from data to clinical outcomes, to integration, to AI, to prediction, to response, to to workforces, to to individual treatments. So you know, to me, it, it's not to limit all these different things, but to actually point out that because of the, the, the disasters that are striking us from climate change and otherwise around the world, a ton of new problems are being created. And that means a ton of new startups can be founded in order to fight them back. Yeah, this is one of those moments when we, we often think about, you know, every CEO that I've spoken to who had a really good 2020 is like, the pandemic was terrible, but it was great for our business. This is like the world's falling apart and we're going to make money off of fixing it. I, it doesn't bother me. It just doesn't because the government, at least here in the States, you know, speaking just for my own country, is not the fastest moving entity. We don't have a lot of solidarity amongst the citizens here. And so we're going to have to have some private technology plugging gaps. And if they make a couple bucks at the same time, I'm fine with that because we'll just borrow it from China and everything will be okay. Amen to that. Um, <laughs>
<laughs> but uh, Natasha, thank you for uh, for playing interview with me, interviewer with me. Danny, thank you for playing interviewee. If you want to read the series of posts that Danny put together, they are in the show notes over on TechCrunch.com. Really worth your time to explore a new startup niche. And of course, we are back Friday with our usual news roundup. We'll see you then. 